listening to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendale. Our guest today is Antoinette Carter, daughter of Susan Burton, who was our guest last time on the podcast. Please listen to my interview with Susan first so you can understand the full picture. Susan spent 16 years cycling in and out of prison as Antoinette was growing up. Antoinette worked for AT&T for 33 years, retiring in 2021. Since 2022, about a year ago, she has joined the staff of A New Way of Life, a nonprofit helping women who are coming out of prison, founded by her mother in 1998. It is a great pleasure to have you with us. Welcome, Antoinette. Thank you. You and I have spoken at length ahead of today's interview about so many topics related to the criminal justice system. Would you remind our listeners how much of your early life was spent without your mother due to her incarceration? I would say about about 50%. Starting at what age? Do you remember? The first time my mom actually went to prison, I was either 14 or 15. Can you describe what visiting your mother was was like when you were around? I guess you began at around that age to, to see her in prison, right? Visiting was hard because it's, it's a very stale environment. And um, oftentimes there's really no compassion from the guards or the the employees at the centers where you go to visit. There's no privacy. You're literally sometimes sitting right next to another family and conversations kind of intermingle. Um, And so it's really stale. It lacks empathy and and, uh, there's no privacy. Yeah. Generally, how how long were you permitted to spend at any given visit with your mom? Uh, it depends on the institution. Uh, initially, when someone is incarcerated in Los Angeles, they end up in the county system. In the county system, the visits were roughly about 15 to 20 minutes. And 15 to 20 minutes? 15 to 20 minutes if you were visiting at the county jail. And if you were going to court, it depends on how long your case lasted. You know, I've seen family members fighting a case for two to three years and family could only visit for 15 to 20 minutes per day. I believe back then they might have been able to visit five days a week, but uh, it was located in in, uh, downtown Los Angeles. But you would literally stand in line for one to three hours to get a visit and the visit would last about 15 to 20 minutes. They were 30 minute visits, but they would never last 30 minutes. The the phones would cut off well before that 30 minute mark. So it was roughly about 15 to 20 minutes and you could visit once per day. And that was a non-contact visit. When you say phones, you were separated by glass or... Right, right. In the prisons, I think today it has changed where you can make appointments to come down and visit. But you would travel in in many, most of the prisons in California are in rural areas. So if you're from Los Angeles and you're having to travel to, let's say, Calipatria or Folsom, it might be a a three-hour drive 
to get to the prison. And again, you stand in line, you get processed in. You generally could stay there until I believe maybe about 2, two to 3 p.m. unless the visiting room got crowded. And if it got crowded, those who came earlier would have to leave to allow for others to come in. But now I think they are now on a an appointment system. So I don't think that that happens as much. Um, but generally you visited weekends and holidays. So Saturday, Sundays and holidays you visited. But it's, um, you know, it's a very long and arduous process because if you're not going down the night before and renting a hotel room, then you have to get up about three o'clock in the morning to get on the road to travel. And then you have to get processed in. And once you're processed in and you have your visit, then we're talking about the cost associated with visiting. And what what do you mean the cost associated with visiting? Explain. Well, first you have to travel there. And so, Mm -hmm. again, if you're spending, if you're getting up and going three o'clock in the morning, you're having to spend money for gas. If you go the night before, then you have to add that hotel cost in. If you're staying the weekend and multiple visits over the weekend, then you have to factor in the cost for a hotel. And once you get there, the cost for food, because you're there, you know, generally four to five hours, maybe even longer, the cost of food is very expensive. You know, if you go to a 7-Eleven today and you wanted to get a small orange juice, it might be $2.50. That same orange juice might be $6 in a prison. So the inflated cost of food further exacerbates the cost to visit. I've gone and traveled the same day, and I've spent on upwards of $150 to $250 in the total trip with gas, meals, with the monies that you spend in the prison, and that's just for one day. So it's extremely expensive to go and visit, and then for people who are visiting multiple days and they do it, you know, every week or every every weekend, the cost grows. Yeah, it's tremendous. And, you know, who can afford that? And it often, of course, impacts people who can ill afford that Correct. kind of money, right? Correct. Yeah. If you could change any aspects of visiting a parent in prison, what what would you change? How would you make it better? I would look to have a little more family-oriented visits, you know, by providing, maybe even having a a small library inside of the visiting room. Um, I have seen where there are games there, but oftentimes the games that they have are a monopoly that was provided 30 years ago. So It's very dilapidated. The numbers, the names, and other things are rubbed off of the games. And so, you know, having that that healthy ability to have some sense of normalcy as much as you can. So to me, you know, having some things that will allow for more intellectual stimulation, more personal stimulation, you know, such as the library or some type of book session. You know, they take photographs, but maybe even having some type of digital media process where they could record a visit or record a piece of that visit with the child so that they have something that they can take home um, and and as, as a reminder. 
And and when we spoke before, you mentioned a program, I believe, about a mom reading a book to her child, um, recording that so that the child would have it. Can can you speak a little bit more about that? Uh, yes, I visited a prison earlier this year in Texas, and they have a storytelling project. And in that project, what they do is uh, they solicit different uh, publishers for books for children, and they have a library, and they allow the parent to pick a book from that library, and they record a video of that parent reading the story and they send that video to the child so that the child can watch the parent as they read the story to them. And they allow the child to, I think there's a, a process where they the child can return some of that. It might just be by writing, but they allow the, the child to return that and talk about what they got from the book and got from the story. And then the parent has the ability after that to pick up and write a letter to the child and foster more correspondence between them and the children. And I thought it was wonderful. Yeah, that sounds great. Speaking of, of correspondence and contact, what what kind of contact did you have uh, all those years with your mom when she was incarcerated? My mother was very far away from home initially. She was a, she was in a whole another state. So my contact with her initially was only by writing. Letters. Yes. The first time she went to prison, she was in Alaska. So oh. there were no visits at all. There was only contact by writing and then an occasional phone call, maybe once every couple of months. Now, why she she was in California, why did they send her to Alaska? I believe she was in Alaska when she was arrested at that particular time. I see, I see. Wow. So that really put a, a crimp in, in everything. Yes. But when she returned to California, were you able to do more in the way of phone calls to her? Or she, she she had to call you, right? You can't call Right, her. right. It, it right. still, you know, it still was an expensive uh, process. And the phone calls were, you know, on the upwards of, you know, $5 a minute. And so having the ability to have a phone call, I can even remember one time my grandmother's phone bill was in the 80s. We're talking about in the, in the 1980s, her phone bill was about $1,800. And so you don't really know how much it is until you get the phone bill and have the shock of having to pay that. And so then it's like, okay, you can't call. You have to write. And then, you know, we can't afford this. And so it puts a strain. It puts a strain on everyone because the system, you know, it makes it impossible to have any type of proper communication, writing, you know, what we call snail mail. You write a letter, you send a letter, you write a letter and put it in the mail on a Monday. You know, it may get to the prison by Friday and then all of the letters that come in, they have to be scanned, they have to be read and reviewed by the guards or or the employees there. And so you write a letter, it might take two weeks for that person to get the letter. So the information that you send is old news by the time the person gets it. And then when they respond, it takes about 10 days per response. Now, today, just for our listening audience, I don't know how many people are aware, but um, 
now there are a few states, Connecticut being one, where the calls are now free. Amazing. So if we were going to change something, that would be one of them, right? Absolutely. And there are a few states that have picked up on this, not too many, but that's exciting. And the other is email. Yes. That that's now part of it. And video chats. Yes. Which is another new thing. And and those are, are wonderful. What a difference from when you were young. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there have been some advances. Yeah. Positive developments. Right. Right. Besides the the difficulty and stress of spending time with a parent who's incarcerated, there there are so many other aspects that have an impact on on a child, just the absence of the parent. And was there a source of support that you had given mom was not there? Who who was there to do the job that she couldn't do? And so I, I had a great support system. I had my grandmother and I had my mom's brothers, my uncles, and they were wonderful given the circumstances. So I had a, I had a great support system and I came to understand even though there was a woe as my mother's absence grew, I had it a, a whole lot better than a lot of other children. And why why do you say that, that you had it a whole lot better? You know, your parent is supposed to be your protector. You're born into this world and, you know, you're naked, you have nothing. So your parent is supposed to be there to to nurture you, to protect you. And a lot of times when you have parents that are incarcerated, Number one, they can no longer be the child's protector. But number two, they're at the mercy of their families, if they have family, or the courts and the the judicial system to care for their children. And I never had, I was never a foster child. And so I never entered into any of the public systems. But a lot of children don't have the luxury that I have. I had five uncles. And they were given the responsibility to take care of me and they took care of me very well. But there are children who have two uncles at home and are being molested, are being assaulted, abused. And I came to understand none of that ever happened to me. And so the the, the pain that I felt was just the genuine pain of a child missing their mother and not compounded by someone harming me physically or mentally. Are you familiar with what happens to children that didn't have some of the advantages that you have? What happens to a lot of these kids? The same thing that happened to their parents. They end up going to prison, cycling in and out of the system. They pick up habits of trying to numb their pain, picking up habits of drugs, alcohol, the combination, and they fall right off into the same cycle that their parents fell into. And some of them, quite frankly, end up dead. I have a cousin that ended up dead. Yeah, that ended up dead, was killed by her mom's boyfriend. And so when you don't have the village to take care of you, to look after you, there's a lot of harm that's done psychologically, they're seemingly not the same person. 
And so they they have an even harder battle to fight, in my opinion, than I had, because they have these other you know detractors or other factors that are inclusive in the process of just mourning the loss of their parent. Do do a lot of kids end up in foster care if there isn't the, as you say, a village to step in and raise? Absolutely. Them? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a mixed bag, right? Foster care. It's a mixed bag. I have been a foster parent to five of my cousins. Oh my. I'm not called a foster parent because they are they are kin to me. I'm called a relative caregiver, but it's the same pretense. When you become a foster child, there's now a a dollar denomination on your head. And so I've seen the, uh, the tug of war. You know, a mom goes to prison or goes to jail. The child is put into the Children Protective Services, and they're uh, sent to a foster home because there's no relative that can care for the home, care for the child, or they haven't reached that relative. And then they reach the relative and the, the relative, because they're not the parent, they're offered money such as the foster parent to house the child. And then the parent comes home and wants to reunite. But you have this money that's been given to them for caring for the child. I've seen people fight. You know, if the parent gets the child, the money goes away. And so I've seen people fight over not the sanctity of the child or the welfare of the child, but the dollars and cents that are attached to the process. I've seen some relatives and some foster parents become attached to the child and not want to give the child up because they've become attached to the child. My son is biologically my cousin. He entered my home as a foster child at the age of two days old. Mm. And ultimately his parents' rights were revoked by the judge. So I adopted him, but that was at four years. But I, I wanted to give them the opportunity to be able to take their child once they gotten themselves together. And to me, that's the whole process of the family system. But the judge had it otherwise. And the judge felt that my uncle was a bad person and was not suitable to be a parent, even though he was one of those five that took care of me. So I had a different opinion of him. My opinion of him was that he had a health issue, which was drugs. And if he could become clean and get himself together the same as my mom did, he should have had the ability to retain the right to claim his child when he was well. And I was ready to give him that opportunity. But the judge said otherwise. And basically told me if I didn't adopt my son at four, that he would take him from me altogether. So you did you have a problem with the adoption or did it go smoothly? No, it went smoothly. It went smoothly. Oh, yeah, it, 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 uh, I signed right there in the court. It was a little pretentious because I disagreed with the judge, but the judge basically told me that it was his court and, and he made the decision. And what I thought he didn't care, but the adoption went smoothly. Um, I signed the paperwork there. I came back six months and signed the additional paperwork. And at that time, the judge told me I'd never have to see him again. And I thanked him for that. And uh, we've never looked back. Good. That's a great story. Yeah. 
So you you reside in California, and you have compiled some very interesting facts about California's prison system. Yes. What have you learned about the, the system there? So the facts that I have, I compiled back in 2017 and 18 uh, when my mom's book came out. And as I was doing research and we were talking about the prisons, I just wanted to know how many prisons we had. I knew some had been built, but it's not something that's on the daily news or, you know, in the paper every day. And so as of the time that I uh, pulled the facts together, California had built a total of 33 prisons. 22 of those prisons had been built since 1980. But on the other guise of education, California had only built one university since 1980. So in the UC system, California had built UC Merced, one university, but they had also built 22 prisons since 1980. And so we have a total of 33 prisons right now. And of those 33 prisons at that time, the cost to run those state prisons was $11.4 billion. Today, it's about $19 billion to run California's 33 prisons. I believe one has been shut down, so I think it's 32 now. But at that time, it was 33. But it was amazing to me that 67% of those prisons had been built since 1980, which was staggering. And the cost to house one inmate that just kind of is emblazoned in my head. It's $75,560. So it's a little over $75,500 to house one inmate, which at that time was $2,000 more than it was to send a child to Harvard. But on the other end, the average salary of a teacher at that time was about $48,500. So when we look at what our state is spending on prisons versus education, we understand that the state is in the business to lock people away. It's a multi-billion dollar business because California has the highest uh, prison operating budget in the world. In the world. In the world. Not just here. Right. And and you when you think about the money that it costs to house one prisoner, could that money be spent another way, you know, in terms of education or programs. There's so many other things. Well, if you if you query one prisoner and you ask them prior to going to prison, what was their salary? The majority of the prisoners don't make $75,000 a year. I think if they did, they probably wouldn't be there. So probably. if you could, you know, I look at my mom. If my mother could go through the process of rehabilitation and learn that she is worthy and learn what her her gifts are, her talents are, what she's good at. Why can't the next person do that? And why can't we really learn to rehabilitate people? Because we're called, our system is called the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, but there is no rehabilitation that happens unless you yourself invoke a rehabilitation process. And when you talk about rehabilitation, your mother was in several rehab programs, none of which worked until she was able to have her brother pay for a private program, right? And That's that right. worked. So look at all the money that was spent on those programs and her 
to incarcerate her for mm-hmm. a period of in and out of, of prison for 16 years. And you want to know the irony for me? The program that my mother went to was so close to our home hmm. that on a good day as a teenager, I rode my bike past that place and didn't even know what it was. So my mother's true rehabilitation was really a bike ride away. It is six stops away on the freeway. And when I rode there the first time from the family home, I was flabbergasted because I had rode past that place, riding to the That's beach. The, the Claire Foundation? Claire Foundation, right? correct. The one that really, really turned, helped turn her life around. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it was incredible. it was just a ride away, a 15-minute ride away in the car from the family home. Yeah. Very, very, like a twist of fate, really. Right. That's incredible. Today, you are a key part of a new way of life. And I wanted to ask you to tell our listeners, what, what's your role at this program for women coming out of prison that your mom created? As the organization has grown, and I talked with my mom about what it looks like moving forward. So I'm here to help. I started an HR department with the uh, with a new way of life and helping to expand services. My mom started the program. There were only two two employees, her and her friend. And now we have almost 60 employees. And so I'm here mm. to start the HR department and to help expand the program. We have whole new departments. We have employees. Uh, we have a paralegal. We've never had a paralegal on staff. We have built out departments as well as there's the SAFE project that my mother is expanding to help people in other parts of the the United States as well as the world build safe homes so that they can replicate the model and build homes for people in other places as well. So I'm here to, I've come for a couple of years to set up an HR department and help the company expand because you Mm. you have, my mom is the face of the company. You have our director, co-directors who are at the forefront, but you need people in the background helping to uh, build the infrastructure. So that's what I'm here to do. That's great. And, and how many homes does a new way of life have under its umbrella? Oh, now? wow. There are 12. 12. There are in 12 different in states or all? All, all in Los Angeles County. Oh, all in Los Angeles under, County. Under a new way of life, yes. The Safe House right. Project is the project where we're partnering with other people and other Uh, groups so that they can open up homes that model a new way of life. But a new way of life started with the one home on uh, 91st Street in Los Angeles. And now we have three homes on that block, but we have Mm. a total of 12 homes in Los Angeles County. That's amazing. So do you see duplication of a new way of life in other states coming? Already happened. Already happened. Already happened. Yes. Uh, that's wonderful. Yes. Wonderful. Yes. You should be very proud of her. Very she certainly. Absolutely. Yeah, what a legacy she, yes. she will have left. So I, is there anything else that you would like to share about maybe any advocacy work that you're doing in the state of California, wherein the justice system is concerned? 
Well, I know that in our advocacy department, they're constantly working. I know right now, one of the biggest things that they're working on is the involuntary servitude and the language that is written into the constitutions and written into policy. And they're wanting to change that language. And so they're trying to change it to remove that language from the Constitution so that, you know, going to prison and working for three cents an hour, four cents an hour, 19 cents an hour is fruitless. You know, it only benefits the prison and and finding ways to really live in the rehabilitation process. A person should not go into prison and come out worse than they came in. We should be setting them up for success because for every person that comes home that cannot take care of yourself, the community has no choice but to take care of them. We're either going to take care of them in our taxes or we can find processes and programs that will help them learn how to take care of themselves so that we can reduce recidivism and we can you know, stabilize more people to help our economy. And so that's one of the biggest things that our advocacy team is working on. That's great. And I'm sure there's so much more that could be done. Oh, yes. It just takes energy, time, all of that. I thank you, Antoinette, for sharing your very unique perspective, um, very different from your mom, because you you were a child, right? And and the impact on children is is long lasting, but you you've really come full circle as she has to do good things for other women coming yeah. out of the system and hoping yeah. to keep them from going back into that revolving door. You know, so absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think I I was speaking to a group and explaining to them, you know, I'm 57, but I'm still the child of the incarcerated parent, as I will always be. And I think what grabbed the audience, I was speaking to an audience of formerly incarcerated and explaining some of their children's behaviors and difficulties when they're a child, when they're an adolescent, a teenager, and a young adult. And what I said to them was the level of devastation that a person feels from your incarceration is tied to the level of vulnerability they have with you. So when you're a child and you know society preaches to you about what a parent's responsibility is, and this is all that we know, the child has a very high level of devastation because they have literally 100% vulnerability to the parent. And so the stress and struggle that a lot of parents have with their children is a child doesn't want to hear that, you know, I'm sorry, and, you know, I didn't mean to go, because that's all that the child sees is that you've abandoned me. So the level of abandonment and vulnerability is so high that when the parent comes home, the scale goes right back to the devastation piece of it. And that's something that, you know, we want to try to work on. We want to reduce the number of people going to prison, whether they're parents or not. Because even if you're not a parent, you're a brother, a sister, a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, one of those. So we want to reduce that level. And then we need to continue to work on 
what those relationships look like. What does it look like? And I think it was kind of like an epiphany moment because after I said that, the conversations that I've had with those parents, um, one man even wept and he said, I think I finally realized the amount of pain I caused my mom. So he was the son. You know, he says, I'm, I'm dealing with my children, but now I think I understand the level of devastation that my mom has had because he was very close to his mother. So I think that was just kind of like a little pivotal moment for me. So much to say. And yes. I, I thank you for your own stories and thank your you. wonderful perspective. Thank you, Antoinette. Thank you. Hopefully next time we will have Tony Willis with us. She is from Philadelphia and she has duplicated what your mom has started. She founded Ardella's House, which again helps women coming out of prison. So hopefully we'll have her join us. So I thank my producer, Jordan Moore, and also to the Innocence Project of Florida for sponsoring this podcast. And please join us next time on Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. Thanks for listening.